the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 23, Episode 3. Senator Dianne Feinstein, a San Francisco legend. Talking with Jason McDaniel, professor of political science at San Francisco State University. California's senior Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away yesterday at the age of 90. The longest-serving female senator in U.S. history, she was a trailblazer in many ways. Professor Jason McDaniel joins us to discuss her life and legacy. Hello, Jason, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Diane Feinstein was a giant on the San Francisco, California, and national stages. What are your thoughts today, Jason? I think about, you know, what a trailblazing career she had. I think a lot about how, you know, our sense of politics on some of the issues she cared about the most have, have changed and I think moved to where she she was uh, early on in, in the 70s. And I also think about the, I, and I, sp- I would say especially on issues like gun control, you know, her, her positions at the time in, in the late 70s have, have grown to be very much the, the Democratic Party's positions. I think of her role of being a kind of centrist, moderate, but still a, a strong liberal and I think that is exactly what's happened with, you know, in the Democratic Party has moved towards that. And, and she's represented that, moved to where she she kind of was early on. But I also think about the way, you know, early in her career, uh, dealing with violence, uh, political violence and assassinations, Moscone and, and Harvey Milk, and the way in which I think that influenced her own understanding and, and, and positions on issues like gun control. You know, I, I think about a lot of these things, especially I think her being a very kind of strong feminist and representing that throughout her life and career. I, I just think of a, a real trailblazing career, one of the most influential women or politicians, period, in the history of California, in the history of the U.S. Senate. It's uh, an amazing thing to look back upon. Well, she was mayor of San Francisco for a total of nine years, and then she moved on to the U.S. Senate. She had a little hiatus between being mayor of San Francisco and then becoming being elected as a U.S. Senator in 1992. Talk to me about her career as a U.S. senator, because, again, she was the first female senator from California. And when she joined the Senate, women were in a tiny minority at that time. Absolutely. I would also just say that women are still less than 30 percent of the Senate. That is, women are severely still underrepresented in our national legislature, both in the House and the Senate. Her career, along with, uh, I think, her fellow California senator for a long time, Bob Boxer, really being talked about as the year of the woman, you know, when, when uh, she was elected. And I think that's important. And I think that's something that she felt uh, to, to represent the state of California was an important part of her legacy and her, her career. And, and I think... I think today, you know, President Biden mentioned that uh, she was often the only woman in the room. And that is something that it's hard for someone like me, uh, I think, to understand that. And I think it's something that we've seen over the arc of her career become something that is still too often the case, I think, but become much less accepted uh, that a woman will be the only woman in a room where, where mostly the men are making these decisions. And I think that is interesting. It reminds me a lot of political science research showing how women in Congress do actually govern differently. And they often emphasize issues that are sometimes thought of as women's issues, but not always. And they also, the way in which 
they govern on issues that are more national security related. They're often uh, emphasized different aspects of that than, than men have in the past. I think her career on the Intelligence Committee, one of her, one of her legacies is going to be her work uh, kind of hold the CIA to account and the national security establishment to account on issues like torture. Uh, during the, the you know the the war on terror, I think that's a huge part of her legacy. And I think being a woman in the Senate from California, those those things are very much tied together. I suspect in her experience of that. Uh, so these are things I'm thinking about today in terms of her legacy. I also think her understanding of, of gun violence, um, the 1994 assault weapons ban was a, was a huge part of her career. I think it's something that she talked about as being an important part, uh, important accomplishment for her. And we now know that gun law has was repealed or allowed to not be reauthorized. And we've seen that assault weapons using, you know, weapons of, of mass violence and mass shootings have skyrocketed and had definitely gone up after the, uh, that law goes, was allowed, allowed to lapse. So again, I think this is important parts of her legacy and accomplishments uh, in the Senate and, and representing California's interest uh, in that regard, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about her role on the Senate Judiciary Committee? Of course, the Senate Judiciary Committee has to vet, interview, and approve all of the federal judges, and in particular, the Supreme Court judges. She played a very significant and high-profile role in the Judiciary Committee. And of course, many of the justices who are on the Supreme Court today came before her panel when she served as uh, she served as chair or ranking member talk to me about that role that she played because in a sense her legacy continues on with some of those judicial appointments particularly at the supreme court level Absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of senators will talk about that perhaps their most important role uh, is the advice and consent and, and approving uh, nominees to the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general. There's no doubt that she took that very, very seriously. I know that she came into office after the uh, Clarence Thomas hearings and, and she had spoken about how watching an all-male panel you know ask him questions related to the anita hill sexual harassment allegations was something that was important to her and informed the way she ran for office and, and the way that uh, she felt her role uh, on the judiciary committee so i think very much an important part of how she saw herself i would also say that uh, as you allude to you know, perhaps how some of the politics has had had shifted in ways that she was not quite uh, shifting with two of the last uh, members of the Supreme Court, not last year, but two of the last members, her role with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, nominees performed by President Trump. She had received some criticism for those, for her performance in those hearings. A similar moment, perhaps, with Brett Kavanaugh and some of the allegations that were did not rise, I think, quite to the public level, what happened with Clarence Thomas. But there were some who would, who would criticize Feinstein for not uh, holding Kavanaugh quite to a standard, perhaps, that, that some people thought he should have been, especially given her, her comments earlier in her career about Clarence Thomas. I think there were some similar criticisms of her with the way uh, in the Amy Coney Barrett uh, uh, hearings, not sort of perhaps, I, I know she'd been criticized for perhaps giving uh, Amy Coney Barrett a little bit of an out appearance of legitimacy on the issue of, of abortion. And perhaps I think she'd been received some criticism from NARAL. Uh, uh, ben Feinstein had received some criticism from NARAL. Again, she had been a staunch, uh, you know, feminist and a, and a staunch supporter of abortion rights. But there, perhaps her, her institutionalist sense of moderation and centrism um, might have been in the, in the last several years of her of her time had 
perhaps you know she hadn't uh, shifted on the politics and, and could have been a more vigorous uh, opponent or at least highlighting some of the criticisms of those uh, members of, of the Supreme Court who would go on to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so I think that is also an important part of her legacy. I think for the 31 years that she served in the Senate, I think she brought she brought wisdom. She brought a California perspective. She brought San Francisco values. And I remember her once telling me the the role that she saw the Senate playing, and she described it as a saucer, like a uh, a saucer of very hot milk that would be that could sort of cool down that would cool down cool down the issues. And so by the time issues got to the Senate, that cooling effect of the and the metaphor that she used of the the saucer, uh, the Senate playing that role, I I thought that was I thought that was very apt. So she had a very clear view of what the role of the Senate of what the role of the Senate was. Let's let, let's not forget about the the role that she played here in San Francisco. Of course, in 1984 she brought the Democratic National Convention to San Francisco where Walter Mondale was nominated and Geraldine Ferraro, the first female to serve on a national ticket, was nominated. In fact, she was rumored at one point to be under consideration for that vice presidential slot. Any thoughts about that 1984 convention here in San Francisco? You're going back almost before my time there. Uh, um, that is some long, long ago history. You know, I know that it speaks to a time when California and California Democrats didn't have as much influence in the Democratic Party as I think they have for the last, you know, especially the last, I think, 10 or 15 years, uh, um, with the Democratic Party being very much a more of a centrist you know, party. I think this is a different era where you had uh, conservatives in the Democratic Party. You also had liberals and moderates in the Republican Party. That doesn't happen as, uh, barely at all, if at all, anymore. In our national politics, and so the idea that San Francisco, I see, still had some of that as well. Uh, you know, being able to see San Francisco as positive sort of national political story, hosting a convention and seeing California as being a competitive state that Democrats want to make sure they bolster their standing uh, for their for their candidates, and seeing that as a, as a as a way to uh, build into a Democratic Party agenda for a presidential nominee. I, again, I think that it was definitely the case in '84. That was part of those the, the, the thought and the messaging. Whereas nowadays, I think unfortunately, too often Republicans and, and I think especially Fox News see San Francisco especially as as more of a character in their narratives, regardless of perhaps facts that, that see it as a as a negative story, and, and they want to emphasize the negative aspects of San Francisco and, and see it as extreme when it comes to perhaps Democratic Party politics. And I think that's probably incorrect as well. It makes me think about how San Francisco politics and, and national politics have changed. She was somebody who was, as, as I say, a unabashedly liberal, but also moderate and centrist and institutionalist, uh, and, and could could really credibly say that she wanted to see the role of a Senate as that cooling saucer. And she was quoting George Washington there when she when she told that to you. And and, and so I think that is something that we will perhaps maybe not miss, but we will see differently. That national politics has changed, and and California politics has changed. Uh, and I think that's in a way. What California voters have wanted, the majority of California voters have wanted that. So I'm not saying it's in a bad way, uh, but it does make me think about how that uh, nowadays, I, I doubt the Democratic Party would want to hold its convention in San Francisco because they would see that as a potential negative message uh, that would signal like extremism to, to the nation, uh, whether it's true or not. Yes. Well, and of course, now with the passing of Senator Feinstein, Governor Gavin Newsom has the authority and the responsibility to appoint a replacement to serve out the balance of her term. And the balance of her term goes through January of 2025. So whomever he appoints 
will serve out the balance of her term, which is approximately 15, 16 months left to run. What do you think is going through the mind of, of Gavin Newsom at this point? And of course, we have to acknowledge and we have to say that he was a close personal friend of Diane Feinstein. He knew her since childhood. In many ways, she was a mentor to him. What do you think is going through his mind? And what do you think his his calculus is going to be when he weighs the different candidates to replace her? I do think it's important to highlight that personal connection. But at the same time, you know, he has to be thinking about the political implications and, and, and the governing and, and representational implications, right? He wants to choose someone who would represent California, both you know, in the Senate, but also I think the Democratic parties, uh, the important role that a Democratic senator will, from California will play in the Senate in terms of the balance of power, I think especially as we're approaching potential government shutdown conflicts and, and going into an election year for President Biden. So I think a lot of that's on his mind. I know that he has said that he does not want to choose one of the three, one of the leading contenders right now. There are three candidates, including Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Adam Schiff, who seem to be one of the, the next senator who's elected next next time around will probably be one of those three people. Uh, so he doesn't want to put a thumb on the scales, for instance, with, with the choice. So I think he wants to choose somebody who will be what we think of as a caretaker, who will be able to do the role uh, without then also some giving, you know, going be a part of the race for the, for the seat next year. That's a delicate balance to strike. And he's also, I think, thinking primarily about his pledge to choose a black woman. And that puts him into a difficult position, uh, I think. Um, I, I suspect that um, if he had not said that, maybe we would see somebody who, more of a caretaker, who, who doesn't really want a, a political career. I suspect now he wants to look for somebody who will benefit, who will see, see the benefit of doing this for a year, knowing that they also will not be most likely be running again to, to be reelected immediately. So it's a very difficult needle to thread. I've been thinking somebody who he, he, he appointed to be Secretary of State, mm-hmm. a woman named Shirley Weber, who might be, be a choice that, uh, that he might go with. You know, he's already appointed her to Secretary of State. Uh, I do think she might have some future political ambitions, but maybe less likely to run for the Senate right away, uh, who may want to be able to run for statewide office and build up an experience that way. That's somebody I've been thinking of that might thread those needles uh, the way that that he, I think, wants. And And again, I think he takes very seriously his pledge to pick a black woman. There is no longer uh, any black women in the Senate. And I think that's very important to represent California and to represent the Democratic Party. And I also think, frankly, there's a political calculation involved as well that that when, if and when uh, Gavin Newsom eventually runs for, for president, you know, having, being the Democratic nominee and, and being someone who uh, has connection with Black women who are the backbone and heart of the Democratic Party, I think is an important part of that kind of calculation for his future political ambition. So all of that is probably going through his mind right now. And at the end of the day, wanted to just select somebody who was going to do the job well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and perhaps be able to carry on the legacy of Diane Feinstein. So it's a very complicated choice. Uh, I don't envy somebody uh, making that choice. Well, Jason, in the remaining moments of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about Senator Diane Feinstein? As I say, I think I, I hope that we can uh, people can consider her legacy and, and consider the accomplishments uh, of a long career of someone who, who was absolutely dedicated to the job and to the people of California. And, and unfortunately, I think that would somewhat you know been tainted by her 
seemingly obvious declines over the last few years, perhaps should have retired earlier. But I hope we can perhaps move, not have her legacy be completely taken by the way this is, uh, by the ending here, and really think about somebody who uh, at one time was the most popular you know, politician in California. That, tell, that, that's a, that gives us a lot to think about for, for both the current, the past, the, the, the present, and the future of California politics. And Jason, how can our listeners follow you? Well, um, that's getting hard these days. Uh, social media is usually the best way to do that. Uh, and I'm on various social media sites. Uh, and I think, frankly, right now, it's getting hard to say. So I guess I'm still on what used to be called Twitter, but that's may not be for very much longer. And, and I guess just for look for me out there as, as I talk to journalists and others. And as you just say these, these days, uh, social media uh, fracturing is making it harder to find. But mm-hmm. for as long as I'm still on there, you can find me on Twitter, I guess. Well, Jason, thank you for being with us today and sharing your perspective and your wisdom on this momentous day, a sad day for San Francisco. Again, thank you for joining us at such uh, short notice. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 449. The San Francisco Experience podcast can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and we have listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently recognized the show as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from... San Francisco.